Welcome back to Awakened Exchanges. I'm your host, Jay Rich, and you're listening to the seventh in my series on this monstrous Great Awakening map. As always, I'm truly grateful to be here speaking with you guys today, and I hope you're continuing to enjoy as we take our deep dive on this strange and compelling web artifact. My co-host this week is Chris Mumy, the multi-time guest and cannabis extractor. We indulged in some pre- and even during recording festivities, but considering the subject matter, I hope you can understand. You can always email me about other interesting topics or guests. You can use the contact form on our website or contact me on Twitter at Awaken Exchanges. I'll keep bringing you the content that you ask for, and I'm always grateful that you're still asking. If you haven't already seen it, you can still find a copy of the high-res Great Awakening map in our show notes and on the website. Uh, and that's just awakenedexchanges.com. And if you're checking out the Telegram channel or Twitter feed, you can see the highlights that I've made to the map and how I'm grouping these topics together. Uh, it's all there in the pin threads. I'll be including the full highlighted map again this week in the show notes on the website and probably on Twitter and Telegram as well. I've already given the disclaimers that we're talking about a lot of conspiracy theories in this series, so let's keep that in mind when we decide how to weigh all of these things. That definitely goes for this week's episode as we start on aliens, and then we head into the future and dive back down into psychedelics. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'll keep the intro brief yet again, but I want to remind you that I'm updating my pinned Twitter threads and Telegram channel to collect all of the visuals that go along with this series. I hope that you're still enjoying the threads, and if you need the link to the Telegram channel, it's in the show notes as well as on the website. I hope you engage with us in the exchange there. Before we get to the metaphysical yet again, here's a brief rundown of our sponsors. As always, I want to thank all of you personally. Your support is the reason I'm doing this. Just listening and sharing this podcast with your friends gives me a reason to keep providing the best content possible. And if you have the means and would like to contribute personally, please take a look at our Patreon page, where you will get access to exclusive content and deals. There are already bonus videos available, and more are on the way. If you have any suggestions for content you'd like to see, I'm also open for that as well. As for our other sponsors, Awaken Vapes was the first of the Awaken brands and has been helping you modulate your high with CBD-only, high-terpene vape products since 2019. Genesis Farms has been making the highest quality medicinal RSO, among many other fantastic products, starting with the medical community back in 2010. And last but not least, the Caramel Corn Company, bringing you caramel corn the way it was meant to be. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on YouTube, or follow us wherever else you're listening. You can also support us on Patreon or connect with us on the social media of your choice. We are at Awakened Exchanges on Facebook and Instagram, and at Awaken Exchanges on Twitter. All right now, stay tuned, and thank you for listening to Awakened Exchanges. Genesis Farms was founded on the belief in cannabis's ability to heal. Genesis Farms is more than a brand. They're a compassionate community of like-minded folks that generate top-quality cannabis products made with love and care. Community outreach is always on their mind, and their partnerships with Grow for Vets and Parents for Pot was just the beginning of what they hope to accomplish in the coming years. 
You can find their products on the best dispensary shelves across the state of Oregon. Their RSO is the most consistent quality in the state. Their tinctures are second to none, and their personal massage oil will have you and your partner coming back for more. Find them on Facebook and Instagram and ask for them in your local dispensary today. Don't forget to listen to Sean's interview right here on Awakened Exchanges. It's episode number three. The Caramel Corn Company is bringing you caramel corn the way it was meant to be. Made with premium ingredients in small, handcrafted batches and completely gluten-free. Their flavors include original, roasted cashew, salted almond, mixed nut, spicy sriracha, white morsel macadamia, peanut butter, butterscotch, and my personal favorites, chocolate drizzle and raspberry caramel apple. I can't say enough about how delicious this caramel corn is. It makes a great gift any time of the year. You can find them for sale in Portland area market of choice locations and hopefully again online soon when they get stocked back up. Please visit www.caramelcorncompany.com for more information today. And remember, buying local supports small businesses and keeps your money building your community. Last but not least, Awaken Vapes has been bringing you some of the highest quality CBD vapes since ringing in the new year of 2019. I became passionate about cannabis after a car wreck left me with major migraines and no prescribed pills helped alleviate the symptoms. Having only tried cannabis a handful of times in high school and college, it was a doctor's recommendation that led me to give it another try. Only then did I realize that we'd all been at least a little misled about the health benefits of this amazing plant. Despite an unexpected break because of the vape ban and then a global health crisis with COVID, the business is stronger than ever, and we invite you to check out our updated website today. We are still offering our three varieties with new and improved terpene formulations for enhanced flavor to go along with the custom blended effect profiles. Check back at www.awakenedvapes.com for any updates, and you can always email us about wholesaling or white labeling opportunities. We're back again. Sadly for you guys, this is our seventh episode involving the Great Awakening map, and it's just getting longer. Uh, but I really want to thank Chris Mumy for once again joining me on the special edition of Awakened Exchanges. This week, we get into some of the really fun and weird things that I've been looking forward to since the beginning. I think most of this stuff will be brand new to Chris, and I'm going to be showing him some pictures and stuff to get his reactions and opinions as we go along. I'm going to be sharing some of those same pictures with you on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, or Telegram, whichever place you want to go and find it. We just shared a blunt that was filled with... uh, Purple Hindu Kush and a significant amount of hash. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why I'm getting tongue-tied if uh, uh, you catch that. On top of that, I also decided to hop up the Tasmanian Space Monkey over here with a rock star with 240 milligrams of caffeine in it. So, should be fun, right? Tasmanian Space Monkey. All right. You like that let's one? Roll, let's roll with that. <laughs> you ready to record this thing? Yeah. All right. So we'll see what we get to. Um, before I even tell you what this thing is, I'm going to show you the picture. You ready for this? Let's do it. All right. Hmm. Yeah. 
What do you think? Uh, first impression is it's something that someone made for like a Ripley's Believe It or Not, Believe It or Not, Believe It or Not <laughs> exhibit. Uh, yeah, so that's the joint kicking in for both of us, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, so it's actually, it's referred to the as the Atacama humanoid. It's a real, actual, biological thing, okay? Um, but... People have been claiming that these mummified remains are that of an alien of some sort. Ada is the common name given to the six-inch-long skeletal remains of a human fetus found in 2003 in a deserted Chilean town in the Atacama Desert. DNA analysis done in 2018 on the premature human fetus identified unusual mutations associated with dwarfism and scoliosis, though these finders though these findings were later disputed. The remains found by Oscar Munoz, who later sold them, and the current owner is a Spanish businessman. Basically, though, it does look like a little tiny alien creature, right? Yeah, it definitely looks funky. Then again, sadly, we kind of look like little alien creatures when we're little. I mean, we still look like alien creatures to an alien. Yeah, that's true. And there is that uh, whole theory that we're going to involve into the greys anyway, right? Have you heard that yet? No. Oh, so uh, there's this long theory that we're actually the gray aliens, the big-headed black guys, uh, that we're them, that they're us from the future, and they can no longer reproduce, so they're kind of coming back here doing experiments, things like that, or some other randomness. All right. All right, you're going to have to say more than that as we go along. <laughs> All right, then, <laughs> as I steal your word, see, fuck! All right, uh, uh, orbs is the uh, next topic. It's a wide-ranging topic and can even be included in that star Merkaba vehicle description we talked about in the last episode. Uh, but in a generic definition that I found, anyway, orbs are the electromagnetic energy fields that supposedly contain angelic energy, which appear to humans in the form of light. Uh, apparently, these angels use these orbs as their vehicles, hence the Star Merkaba thing from before, as we would use a car to travel from place to place. Because orbs are an especially good shape for angelic energy. So, yeah, uh, you have to say more than all right this time. This is some pretty off-the-wall shit. This is what I was trying to explain to you. The map was used to spread a lot of weird conspiracy theories as well as like spiritual pseudo scientific pseudo spiritual kind of bullshit i guess <laughs> i mean it's just all a hypothesis on an explanation for something that's unexplained and even that it's fucking it's orbs. It's everybody's talking about something different. They're just using that word to describe whatever. Yeah, right? it's a generalized term. So I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's it seems like new age terminology run amok. Um, the next thing we're going to talk about is uh, ancient ETs or UFOs that were supposedly in the Tibetan highlands. Uh, according to an article on HowAndWise.com, which I'm going to include in the show notes here. Uh, in 1938, an expedition of archaeologists led by a Chinese explorer named, God, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Chi Pu Te, 
discovered many caves in the Bayan Kara Ula Mountains on the border of Tibet and China. After examining them, scientists found 716 circular stone disks dating 12,000 years old that turned out to be in ancient tombs and contained the remains of mysterious skeletons. First, before I continue with uh, a little bit more of this article, there has been some speculation that the disks are just the regular fucking clay disks that you find of the era much later on, not just 12,000 years ago. And that would be uncommon if that part were true. Uh, but we'll get more to that. So, uh, And you can feel free to interrupt me whenever the fuck you want, but I know I'm just like throwing random fucking off-the-wall crap at you. So I'm just listening. All right. Chipute and his team found several caves nearby that had rock paintings of creatures in large helmets. Those creatures were painted in the backgrounds of images of the sun, moon, stars, and the earth. Further, they found a collection of 716 round stone discs with tiny hieroglyphic signs inscribed on them. Some of the discs were partially under the cave floor. Some sources say the discs had completely inexplicable qualities. It was found that they... Produce strange vibrations. Pute, I'm sorry, that it just sounds really awful. Uh, so let's go with Tay. Brought the stone disc to Beijing University where they were kept uh, for the following two decades until a professor named Sum Um Nui began to study them closely in 1858. After four years of research, Nui said the stones were at least 12,000 years old and the hieroglyphics contained the information of their origin. Professor Nui claimed that the hieroglyphs described a story of an ancient civilization named Dropa that arrived from another planet in a spacecraft but had to do an emergency landing near the area of the caves. One of the discs allegedly contained the following text. The Dropa came down from the clouds in their aircraft. Our men, women, and children hid in the caves ten times before sunrise. When at last we understood the sign language of the Dropas, we realized that the newcomers had peaceful intentions. Dropa were unable to leave the planet. They simply died, but had apparently established friendly relations with the local tribe Calm and helped each other to survive. According to the description, the aliens were really small, had scanty body hair, and the main feature was their blue eyes, which are not found among the inhabitants of Asia. It goes on to say that there's no record of the artifacts ever being exhibited in any museum, and the last scientists who looked for them in 1994 were told that the discs were destroyed. The few existing photographs of the stone were taken by Austrian engineer Ernst Wegerer, in 1974, and I'm sorry for butchering any of these names. But they seem to show ordinary round jade discs, which are often found by archaeologists in that province. The lack of evidence and no records of either the Chipute expedition or the existence of Sum Um Nui has led most archaeologists to believe that the Dropa stones are nothing but a hoax. These are the supposed Dropa stones. I don't really know what to make of that. They are... Look. Yeah, please. Yeah. They, and look at YouTube or, like I said, any of the other channels to take a look at these, this image. Um, this was supposedly an image from 1954. Honestly, to me, I think it looks like somebody's possible recreation. But if it were a real image... 
sadly, like I said, uh, in 1994, uh, some expedition tried to get a hold of these, and uh, they were unable to produce them, basically. They were told they were destroyed. I think it's all just kind of a nice little story you can write off and hopefully let fade into history. Also, considering that part of the world, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of information out of anyone unless, one, someone knows where they are, and, two, you have money. Ah. So, basically, you're saying even if there was anything, because it's China, we wouldn't know it as Westerners. Yeah. It's just that's not our part of the world. It's a totally different culture. We're outcasts, and only someone that is inside that inner circle is going to even have access to ask the types of questions involved to the right person if they can find them and considering the population yeah that's like finding the tip of a needle in a mountain and everybody there is scared of their leaders and let alone if you're a minority the what they're doing to the uyghurs up there is fucking insane yeah um, the amount of information even coming out of China at this point is very minuscule. So, Well, I don't know what to make of these discs, but uh, yeah, let's move on to the future realizations part of this little map. What do you think? Let's do it. Wikipedia is a great resource and, as always, is going to help me define a lot of these. As the singularity is a ever-vast topic, have you heard about it at all? I assume this one... Vaguely, yeah. All right. Basically, the singularity is a hypothetical point in time which technology growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible, resulting in unforeseeable changes to human civilization. According to the most popular version of the singularity hypothesis called intelligence explosion, an upgradable intelligent agent will eventually enter a runaway reaction of self-improvement cycles, each new and more intelligent generation appearing more and more rapidly, causing an explosion in in intelligence. (laughs) Shadow is trying to sneak up on the microphones and us right now, so sorry for the distractions, but uh, if you hear her or a crashing of a bong or a two, that could be it. Gonna leave that in and keep moving on here. Um... Uh, It leads into an explosion in intelligence and resulting in a powerful superintelligence that qualitatively far surpasses all of human intelligence. The concept and the term singularity were popularized by Werner Vinge in his 1993 essay, The Coming Technological Singularity. Despite originating with earlier thinkers, in it, Vinge wrote that the singularity would signal the end of the human era, as the new superintelligence would continue to upgrade itself and would advance technologically at an incomprehensible rate. He wrote that he would be surprised if it occurred before 2005 or after 2030. 2030 is fucking right around the corner. Anyway, public figures such as Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk have both expressed concern that full artificial intelligence could result in human extinction. The consequences of the singularity and its potential benefit or harm to the human race have been intensely debated. And even Elon Musk goes back and forth on it at this point. I think it's inevitable. Beyond that, I don't know. What do you think? Um, I wish I could actually cite the author of the article. Uh, I read... It had to have been four or five years ago. Okay. An article of a guy talking about the current rate at which technology is progressing. And I believe in that article, he said sometime between 2025 and 2030, 
we would have computers with the computational power of the human brain. Um, and sometime by the mid 2040s, we would have computers with the uh, processing power of every human on the planet combined. And what you're talking about is from the technology that we knew existed at the time as well. Correct. That's the stuff that we don't really take into consideration is how far advanced have they gotten where we don't even know, like DARPA? Yeah, they're not going to share any of that with <laughs> any of us. I don't, yeah, that's yeah. way above my pay grade. But that, yeah, the singularity is definitely something that could be concerning or revelatory or both. It could mean extinction, I mean, or... But at this point, it's also kind of something that's inevitable. Exactly. Humanity's at the point to where they have something extremely powerful at their fingertips and nobody really knows what it is yet because it's growing so fast. I agree. I mean, we still don't have up-to-date internet laws or, I mean, for that matter, really anything. Yeah. Um, considering the rate of technology progression. I mean, we're just getting some internet to parts of our own country that are still really... Um, oh, yeah, we still have... DSL is the main option for a lot of people, and that's... I barely consider that internet having had cable for almost... for more than two decades, or most of the last two decades, when and, I wasn't inside. <laughs> yeah, and then you have people who are in major metropolitan areas which have access to internet that's thousands of times faster than that. Oh, yeah, the T1... Uh, the T1 lines, the fiber lines, like Google Fiber and things like that oh, have yeah. been putting in. They were supposed to come out here, but it just, like, they stopped developing for some reason. Uh, the chip shortage. Anyway... Uh, like we said, I think it, I think we both agree it's pretty much inevitable at this point. Yeah, I'm a little worried about it, considering we don't really know what's being developed, why it's being developed, and for what purpose it's being developed. Or so who it's if being there's, developed by. Exactly. So if there's any type of mal or sinister intent behind it, unless it's outside of an academic setting, it could be a very, very dangerous thing. Well, what we've known with like the basic AI programs, they're trying to sort through resumes. But because they're sorting through resumes, they're a program based on past hires, which were racist. And those racist hiring practices actually like merged into the data. So predominantly black schools, you got blacklisted. Women's schools, blacklisted. Uh, age of education, too old, blacklisted. It was it was all of these things that just added up to our own human biases being programmed into the AI. I mean, it still happens now to this day. Yeah. And just even in current modern society, the media is giving you 20% of a story and the rest <laughs> of it's all made up. So... It's, it's not going to be any different any generation down the road. You're going to get that same thing until you have a program that is, I don't want to say self-aware because I don't know if that's even a possibility because, like I said, I, I don't At know what point, what's being developed. And what point would you be able to qualify that anyway? What point would we know? I don't think we would. I think ever, we would be ignorant until the very end. What? Americans <laughs> ignorant of something? What? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's definitely going to change modern society as we see it. But at this point, it's kind of inevitable. I'm kind of excited to see what the next 25 years is going to bring in terms of technology advancement. We were on the moon 50 years ago. And then we stopped for a while. 
or did we? That's the next episode. Yeah. We'll get more on the secret space program. Uh, so there's at this point unlimited possibilities. Like whatever you can think of is going to be a reality within the next 30 years. Oh yeah. And technology is advancing so much faster than I think we're really, if there's one facet of any of it that kind of worries me though, it's AI and nanotechnology. Nanotech is fascinating. It's also terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. But if it's done right, it could solve a lot of problems. If You're it's right. done wrong, it could destroy the world. So have and you heard of it? <laughs> oh, and you'd never know because you can't see it. It's dust particles to us, basically, yeah. at that point. Have you heard of a, a theory called time wave zero? No. Okay. Have you heard of Terrence McKenna? Mm, no. More on him and time wave zero later, but for this portion of it, Time wave zero is basically a theory that time is like a, a tape, like a cassette tape, okay? goes in a spiral. Um, it goes around and around. It spins. There are certain At certain times are aligned. If you were to poke a hole in that tape and go all the way through the center, you'd see all those overlapping points that the needle would go through. You see what I'm saying? Um, anyway, if you uh, look at it like that, all those layers would align and... Each point along history that would be touching at that certain point would technically be a thin veil away from each other. So you're more likely to have, like, say, World War II or um, uh, what's the other one I was trying to think of? Oh, the Civil War, where you have ghosts that are kind of a recurring theme and stuff like that. I think that those lasted such a long time that they overlap a lot of points in our in that time wave, you know? Yeah. Um, that said, that's if you're believing in those things and kind of using this as a theory. Uh, time Wave Zero uh, was created by Terrence McKenna, and I'm going to get more into it when we get into the psychedelic section. Um, at least I think I will. But it's really difficult to explain. I would suggest going online and looking into it if you're if you're a Terrence McKenna fan. But beyond that, what are your, your thought on time and overlapping multidimensionality? Or Jesus yeah. Christ! Um, Don't worry, we got time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to start with all of that. That's uh, okay. Let's I mean, do a condensed one. You don't have to worry about it. We'll get more to shit later. I don't know a ton about this kind of stuff, but from my understanding of it currently, time is pretty much directly affected by gravity. It, I've actually, I recently heard this one theory um, on a re-watching of a movie, maybe even The Time Traveler's Wife, where they describe gra- um, like time travel as gravity like he was pulled back to certain places in time repeatedly because they were important places to him so the way that you said gravity there like instantly made me think of that um and i could see that as well like maybe in that if it were like a time in a spiral which is also could be considered like time as a flat circle which goes into the record like thing and i had that thread at the very beginning um not of this series uh but maybe i will I think I included that, the Taurus field model in my Telegram channel, if you want to go check that out. But it's a, it's a very interesting way of looking at time and reality. Yeah. 
And considering how big our universe is, there's things about gravity and time that we still don't understand. So Yet it supposedly exists all in the here and now mathematically. So that's going to be, I don't know. But Can't explain only, it. But that's only from the observable I think I think that we are observing time. And uh, if we were... If we still don't know what what is under half of our ocean, then how can we say with any type of certainty we know what happens in space? I I agree with that as well, but I think that dimensionality is time. Like if people in the map talk about this higher vibration and moving themselves up. So if we right now we'd be four dimensional beings living in time, right? Mm-hmm. So five D is the next thing supposedly. So that would be outside of time or being able to see multiple timelines, multiple realities. And I, I would like to believe that kind of stuff is possible or something that we could access that, but I do not think there's going to be any way we have evidence of that in our lifetime. We'll probably never see anything like that. All I right. mean, we can hope. <laughs> a portal from LA to New York, open now. Travel to New York in half a second. <laughs> Almost painless. Before we get to the next thing, I think we should take a dab. Okay. And I can edit this however I want to, where we can include part of it, but we don't have to include the whole process of getting it heated up and shit. Get yourself a dab. I thank you. I will go ahead and go first since you took the last one, sir. You should be good. Yeah. Son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta use a much smaller dab on it next time. (laughs) Tell me how to live my life. No, I thought that was me. Was that you? Did you add to it? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> In that case, dab the fuck out of it. <laughs> While you're dying over there, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read some of this next part, which we're going to get into hyperspace. Woohoo! Woohoo! According to the uh, great wiki... <laughs> yeah, there, there's no time like dab time. <laughs> uh, hyperspace is a concept from science fiction and now cutting edge science that relates to higher dimensions and a superluminal method of travel. It is typically described as an alternative subregion of space coexisting with our own universe, which may be entered to using an energy field or some other device. Um, interesting that it's becoming science fact, but it also relates a little bit to that whole time wave zero we were just talking about. I still don't know how to visually describe that to you guys. I hope that my description was all right, but uh, go look at that other 
that Taurus model thing that I put out there as well. Um, a related term, um, hyperdimensional realms may be used, uh, but there's also this concept of fractal or elastic time and space. So fractal space, time and microphysics towards a theory of scale relativity by Laurent Natale, whose description says it is the first detailed account of a new approach to microphysics based on two leading ideas. One, the explicit dependence of physical laws on the scale encountered in quantum physics is the manifestation of a fundamental principle of nature scale relativity. This generalizes Einstein's principle of motion or relativity to scale transformations. Basically, the smaller it is, uh, you know, leads to different different mechanics, basically. Have I confused you yet? Yes. Good, because it con- it's confusing as fuck. Uh, the mathematical achievement of this principle needs the introduction of a non-differential space-time varying with resolution. This is the second part of their thing. Uh, which basically is that space characterized by its fractal properties rather than how we see space-time or how we see space now as this three-dimensional or four-dimensional thing. Uh, The author also discusses in detail reactualization of the principle of relativity and its application to scale transformations, physical laws which are explicitly scale-dependent, and fractals as a new geometric description of space-time. So it sounds relatively scientific and well above my head, but I didn't go into the author's credentials a whole lot. Um, Fractals are something that are definitely um, of interest to me, especially in relation to sacred geometry and the shapes that we're now actually pulling out of mathematics. It's, It's fascinating, which I know I use that word too often, to think about what could be out there. But, uh, again, it sounds like a a theory about how that could work on a quantum scale. So since this is all above my intellectual level, I'm going to use some really grown-up thoughts right here. Awesome. Let's hear it. If it is mathematically impossible for us to really get to the end of a number... Yeah, infinity, we can't really comprehend. So we haven't figured all the math out yet. No, we barely know math. So we still got a lot of work to do, and that's where computers are going to come in with helping us along those lines. Well, in that case, if any of my listeners out there actually have read this book, which I am not going to have the time to get into with my schedule as it is until I get somebody else working here besides just me, uh, and thank you again for showing up and recording with me, Chris, by the way. Yes. <laughs> uh, but um, until then, I'm just going to let this go. If you have happened to read it, you know, send me a little review or something, and I'll, uh, I'll read it here on air. Uh, The next section is actually the one that I wanted you here for. Are you ready for this? I am here. For psychedelics. Ooh. Trippy. We're a little stoned, uh, but not that bad. We have a pretty high tolerance to this shit. Um, Slur a little bit once in a while or trip over some words, which I have to either edit out or laugh about. That's the best part of being the editor. Right? (laughs) I try to use as little editing as I can because I do want people to realize that everybody's fucking human. 
Especially as we sit here stoned, talking weird, random topics. Hyperspace. Whoa. All right. For a space monkey, that's a lot, dude. I know. A Tasmanian space monkey at that. I wish I lived in Tasmania. So Your brain more. went there instead of the terror that you would cause as a Tasmanian What are you space talking monkey? about? I'd be peaceful there. Everyone else would be wild, too. Oh. You would just be at home? Something like that. I like it. <laughs> Find a good treehouse. All right. Psychedelic Renaissance uh, is listed on the map. Um, the war on drugs is a war on consciousness is a quote that they use as well. Any thoughts on that? I don't think they're wrong considering the yeah. amount of misinformation that they spread over the course of the entire dare program's existence. Oh yeah. And I was definitely a victim of that. I didn't, I scaredly, uh, smoked pot a handful of times in high school and college. Yep. And then not again until after I got my medical card in 2006, they traumatized me from ever even so much as getting anywhere near the fucking nozzle of a spray paint can because they made <laughs> me think that I was going to get sudden sniffing syndrome and die. Yeah, exactly. So I think the misinformation has now led to this age where half of us are really just trying to spread the information and truth out there, and the other half are very slow to waking up. I was going to say, it's kind of ironic that they taught me so much about inhaling gases for <laughs> uh, as long as they did, and now I pretty much work exclusively with butane, so <laughs> the irony's pretty thick. Uh, um. If you're talking about psychedelia, which is also mentioned on the map, that's just referring to the subculture around psychedelics, the art, those kind of things. Um, awakening to the multidimensional nature of our reality. 5D to 7D density. Again, this is supposedly all about us transitioning to those higher vibrations and shit. Um, as we go from you know, here to those other dimensions, supposedly we'd see other things, we'd develop other abilities, we do things that we have no fucking clue about because we don't understand the physics, math, or what the hell any of us are trying to describe. Yeah. Uh, if any, it's true and we only use 90, or what is it, 10% of our brain power? Now, uh, this is just yeah. all, like, hypothetical exactly. now generalizations, but... You're going to get those weird, those sticklers out there that say, well, we use all of our brain, well... We use all the parts of our brain, but we don't use it in concert. We don't use it actively. We so, filter out a lot of information. So that's what we're saying when you use like 10% of your brain or whatever the figure is. But at the same time, if if that logic is your train of thought, then how are old people able to process things when they're 100 and whatever years old versus someone that passes away at 60? Because how do you know that that brain wasn't going to do something fantastic in the next 40 years well and that's the thing is we we don't realize or we don't really know what's causing that aging we get we know some about the plaques and the buildup things like that we're starting to learn more about telomeres and cell division uh some of the things that cause predispositions to things like alzheimer's and and dementia but I just I think we're we're at the very beginnings. They're actually studying uh, mushrooms as therapy for Alzheimer's and mm -hmm. shit now. They're it's, actually using it in quite a few different types of medicinal regards too. Yeah, microdosing with PTSD has been hugely successful. So we're gonna get more on psilocybin here, or at least our opinions on it. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
And entheogen is a generic term for a psychoactive substance that induces alterations in perception, mood, consciousness, cognition, or behavior for the purposes of engendering spiritual development or otherwise in sacred contexts. Anthropological study has established that entheogens are used for religious, magical, shamanic, or spiritual purposes in many parts of the world. There's actually a theory out there that these entheogens kind of give us uh, hyperdimensional lenses in which we contemporarily view the world. Um, so, like, it basically strips away some of those filters that our brain puts on the input coming in so that we can make sense of the world and opens us up closer to that five-dimensionality or more. And I guess this kind of leads back to the statement that I made earlier about our brain's capacity to exactly. kind of do things is that there's so much that our brain is capable of doing that we have no idea about. Do you and think I guess that some of these psychedelics actually open those abilities up a little bit? I think that's what drugs or chemicals that alter the brain in general are meant to do. It doesn't matter if it's sugar all the way up to heroin, like anywhere in between that is going to be some type of an alteration to your natural brain chemistry that's going to allow you to think or function on a different plane of thought than you were previous to that. So I'm going to get into a little bit of this, but I want to ask, do you know anything about sacred cows? In Hindu terminology, do you, yes. just, you, you know of it, right? Yeah. There's a theory about why they exist is because... Um, as we were migrating out of Africa and everything else, we were following these herds of cattle and stuff, and in their shit grew fungus. That fungus is a psilocybin fungus that's mm -hmm. commonly found there. So they became sacred cows because they provided a way for us to commune with God. Or ancestors or mm -hmm. Or any, basically the Hindu religious texts or any of those kind of things. Um, I don't know. We're going to talk about a few of the kinds mentioned on the map. So the first thing that the map predicts is that cannabis gets legalized, which it does seem like we're moving closer to as, as soon as they figure out some way to give Big Pharma a corporate advantage over us somehow. Did you hear that Spain just legalized? I did not. I know Mexico's on the way as well. Spain just legalized, and then I believe they're also trying to drop their work week hours down to 32-hour work Ugh. weeks. We should all have four-day work weeks. It's I believe it so was much Spain. healthier. It, it would be nice. Yeah. Well, um, anyway, I do think that we are on the way to cannabis legalization. I don't know that it happens anytime soon. It would be nice if we could at least get some banking regulations for CBD and hemp kind of bills out there. Even statewide cannabis uh, should have access to banks at this point. I mean, it... In Oregon, they do. It's just Barely. very specific, and it has to. And it's only one bank that's allowed to handle and it. And you got to pay them like five hundred bucks a month or some shit. Yeah, and the amount of paperwork that goes with it is astronomical. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it definitely needs to be addressed at the federal level because there is absolutely enough states out there with either medical or recreational programs in place, and everyone's just kind of sitting on this pile of cash that they can't really do anything with. Agreed. All right, the next one's a pretty fun one, and one I know we've both uh, partaken in a few times. All right. Psilocybin. Okay. The magic mushroom. All right. Our favorite fungus. I know, I'm such a fun guy. 
all right. The map actually suggests, in quotes, five grams in a silent meditative darkness, which I haven't done yet, but I would actually like to try someday. What's the uh, what's the most you think you've done? Uh, three grams, two point eight, somewhere in there. We're gonna have to up that someday. Yeah, I think as I'm getting more comfortable with experimenting with it, I think the first few times I did it, I kind of just had to like. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it all it's goes back to intense. that like psychology where you have to you work think through something stuff. bad's gonna happen, and like I've seen some people that have like really kind of messed themselves up on whether it be liquid LSD or something along those lines that I never wanted to get like that. I agree. So I've always been very cautious with my consumption of whatever substance it might be that I'm choosing to abuse. Minus cannabis, maybe. I mean, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, but that's just because you're so experienced with cannabis at this point, your tolerance level is ridiculous for the human body to have any type of negative effect from cannabis, you would have to ingest somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think, 13,000 pounds in yeah. one hour. It's just some stupid shit. There's no possible way to get it done, basically. There is no way to get it done. I've tried. <laughs> I've seen you try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't suggest everybody run out there and do mushrooms. I want to say that first off. Yeah, um, I think definitely the first time if you are going to go along those lines, start slow. Yeah, I actually suggest a it's, mini it's, dose. I mean, it's like that with edibles, too. If you're going to yeah. try out edibles for the first time, definitely start slow and work your way into it so you can build your confidence in it. You can build your um, comfortability with it, yeah. and it gives you a better mindset psychologically when you go into something like this, especially if you've experienced smaller amounts. You're like, okay, well, I feel like I can handle that, and you're able to increase until you get to a point to where you're comfortable. And 3.8 is like yeah, a little over an eighth, you know? Yeah. That's a hefty dose. I mean, uh, the studies at John Hopkins, I think they're using five and a half grams. That's a pretty sufficient or significant yeah. dose. Well, the map, like I said, recommends five grams. They also say a meditative darkness. Uh, that's because you're supposed to confront all of the, the things that come up to you. You're supposed to actually yeah. go through and confront your fears and and kind of face life head on. That's what it's supposed to be about. It's an actual journey for yourself, right? It's, uh, my outlook on it is it's a type of meditation. Absolutely. It's brain therapy. Well, I, I've done seven and a half grams and wrote on it. And it felt like it wasn't me writing. It felt like I was like pulling the words out of the ether kind of a thing. It was a very different experience. And it was difficult to actually get words down on that state. Were you able to like legibly write stuff out? I was. Basically, I, I was actually typing. Um, I was using my phone and being able to like scroll through oh, a little was bit. A trip. It was hard to do, <laughs> but I was able to, you know. I didn't put in punctuation that much. I put in periods. I, I broke it up with some spaces once in a while with uh, some paragraph spaces and shit. But that was about all I could manage at that Psilocybin point. I've been word vomit. But it was actually fairly interesting. Um, that said, the most I've done is like ten and a half. Uh, but while it was an intense experience, I don't really remember that much of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I've not even done half of that. So I, I don't know. Um, I do have a high tolerance on so much shit that I think that that's why 
uh, after I was able to, I did the 10 and a half before I did the seven and a half. I felt nearly functional on the seven and a half on a totally plain, different plane of existence, but nearly functional. Uh, the 10 and a half, I, like I said, I don't remember that much. I remember an experience of some sort that was somewhat pleasant and somewhat not pleasant. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, that's about all I'd expect you to remember. <laughs> all right. Uh, the next one, I think you've had some experience with as well. Care to guess? Uh, nope. Well, acid, LSD. Pretty limited experience. I've done it yes. a few times. Uh, and small quantities, correct? You've also I've taken done, that the same precaution, or taken it with the same caution. I think right? my highest dose of LSD was three, three and a half tabs. And I think that those were close to true hundreds. Yeah. So um, that's a fair dose. Um, it was a cleaner one, if I remember right. It oh, was, I ate two pounds of Starburst. It was the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. <laughs> well, Not the next day. My stomach was mad. <laughs> but that evening, I had an otherworldly experience with a two-pound bag of Starburst, and I will never forget it. I think that once you start eating on acid, it's different. But like, I don't get hungry, so I don't think about it. Uh, I've only, I've rarely eaten on any uh, psychedelic, and it's the same for me. I typically never eat, but for yeah. whatever reason, that That's, was just what my brain fixated on because I just oh you you had one and that burst. Oh literally. yeah, it was like that little burst of flavor hit my mouth, and I'm like, I need that again. And it was just <laughs> like this repetitive dopamine rush that I was getting every time I ate one. And then I remember running out, and I was sad. And there was something about me leaking because I was just like, I had water running out of my eyes, out of my nose. Oh, it was, it was a great night. LSD was first synthesized in 1938 and is an extremely potent hallucinogen, as we've just described. It's synthetically made form of lysergic acid, which is found in ergot, a fungus, another fungi, that uh, grows on rye and other grains. It is so potent that its doses tend to be in the microgram range. Like we said, this was three and a half or 350 micrograms, which would yeah. be 0.3 milligrams. It's a tiny amount yeah. for some of the more potent fucking hallucinogenics out there. Yeah. Uh, even more potent would be DMT. I've actually been kind of curious about this recently because i have heard a lot of really crazy shit about dmt somebody you know might still have a little bit of a dmt vape cartridge so hypothetically speaking i i don't know i don't know if i'm ready for that type of an experience yet so i'm gonna tell you that uh I haven't done ayahuasca, which we'll get to in a minute here. Um, DMT in the vape cartridge, which I've tried from our friend. Uh, wow. All right, so I've gotten to pre-liftoff uh, twice. Liftoff is what they say or what they call when you actually you feel yourself blast off into outer space, basically. <laughs> you feel yourself go to another dimension. And I have been on the verge of that twice, and it has been both exhilarating and scary as fuck see and that's i guess that's one thing with drugs in general that i'm kind of hesitant about is i don't know 
if I'm comfortable with my brain being that unfunctional, because so, if for whatever reason something does happen, I want to be at least somewhat competent enough to react to the situation. So the first time I tried it with the the pre lift off state was in at in a camping experience actually, and I had a watcher over me. So um, it's called the businessman's high because it's like at most, and then this is the smoking form, not the vaping form. You're talking a 15 minute trip, and you're back to normal, maybe half hour. Okay, um, but it's just it was very tingly at first and then you get this crystallization effect kind of going around the scene around you um the first time i i experienced it it was very very mild uh the second time was actually uh during a rough spot with the same person i was with at the time uh and i decided all right i'm kind of prepared for this i want to go ahead and do this experience um our our cat Pippa was on the bed with me and I, I laid down. I'm like, okay, I want to be able to be immobile, be comfortable, not worry about it. And I took three really deep inhales. And then on the, I was going to try for that fourth one just to see, cause I knew, you know, you're supposed to just do it until you can't basically. And that it does not taste good. <laughs> and, uh, that, uh, that fourth inhale, uh, I foregone uh, and as I put the pen down, the world turns into like Aztec art. It like living Aztec art, the walls, everything. Puka turns, looks at me, smiles, and says, You're not ready for this. <laughs> uh, my heart's going pretty fast at this point and it starts to just go back into a little crystallization form and settle itself back down and I'm like okay I'm not ready for this <laughs> and that so, sounds amazing uh, yeah I, I let it stay with our friend and uh, that, that was it I'm not gonna lie if the cat started talking to me right now that'd be the dopest thing I've ever seen in my life uh, I would sit shadow. here and have a conversational shadow. I know, right? All right, so dimethyltryptamine is a chemical substance that occurs in many plants and animals and which is both a derivative and a structural analog of tryptamine. It can be consumed as a psychedelic drug and has historically been prepared by various cultures for ritual purposes as an entheogen. So we're going to get into some more... Um, interesting elements of this this drug but dr rick strassman which i think i talk about later on uh, wrote a book called dmt the spirit molecule because the pineal gland it's his theory and i believe not just his um that that's where endogenous dmt is produced in our bodies and it's produced at serious events like birth death and big traumas like near-death experiences things like that um, well, you get this natural rush of a DMT experience. Uh, because it's actually found in everybody, normally it can't pass the blood-brain barrier because um, it's just absorbed by MAOs instantly. So in order to make it orally active, which is what ayahuasca is, it's an orally active version. Um, I'm going to read this little bit. 
So ayahuasca is a South American entheogenic brew commonly made out of the Banisteriopsis copy vine and the Psychotria viridis shrub, or some substitute of that, uh, as well as some other ingredients. The most interesting thing about it is that since DMT is so short-lived on its own, like I was saying, the natives had to learn to mix it with a natural MAO inhibitor, which is found in that specific vine. How did they know to do so? The plants told them so, apparently. That's an interesting thing, huh? Yeah. Thousands of years, it's on uncontacted tribes, all the stuff they've been carrying it on. They're like, no, the plants told us to do it. Okay. Whatever you say, boss. Yeah, that makes me kind of interested. You got I, the sharp pointy stick. So here's the thing. Uh, um, Terrence McKenna, which we're about to talk to him, uh, talk about in a second here, uh, and his brother Dennis, were who brought DMT basically to a Western awareness. Uh, they also brought uh, mushrooms back to Western society. So thank both of them. Uh, but uh, they're doing God's work, right? <laughs> Dennis actually hosts um, an ayahuasca retreat. It's a week long event. All right, so you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take it very seriously. Uh, you do a fast beforehand, so you like no meat, uh, no certain things you can't eat because you're gonna purge, right? There's lots of vomiting and you know possibly shitting yourself, things like this. That it, you, it's an intense experience, okay? Uh, but they do it. He's done it in this this very specific psychological way for years now, and he hosts these people in a very uh, concentrated effort. You do ayahuasca three times. First time, you kind of confront everything that's out there, if I remember right. The second time, uh, you process through a lot of your shit. And the third time is kind of like the, the reawakening. You like, you for, you're like, oh, I'm so done. I don't want to deal with this shit again. This third time, and it's just like, oh, you're reborn. And that's kind of how I remember it. It's fascinating to me. I am, I am drawn to it, but I'm also scared kind of shitless by it. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's really ready to confront all of that. I think it's I know. it's easy to be comfortable. It is. I've confronted a lot of shit in my life. And I've I got to the point where I, I live fairly out loud at this point. But I'm sure there's still some, some darkness in there I don't remember or I don't really consciously think about often. Yeah, because there's no reason for you to. <sighs> anyway, if I ever do it, that's probably where I'm going. But let's talk about Terrence. I mean, we're eventually going to hell anyway, so whatever. Why the fuck not? <laughs> Got to experience all the different dimensions. Well, they say hell is just what we create of it. So if you realize that hell is just our own creation, well, then we can stop creating oh, our God hell. help them. <laughs> Chris is going to run a bus. It's going to be wild. <laughs> all right. So Terrence McKenna is credited with bringing back psilocybin to the West as well as reintroducing DMT and ayahuasca, which I was just saying. Uh, he was quoted with saying that DMT brings you as close to the bardo as anything else this side of the yawning grove. You can look up those terms on your own, but bardo we talked a little bit about in the Buddhist section. It's that transition period between death and whatever is next. It's the evils you have to face. And, and so that's, pretty much like that experience I was just telling you about. And you're going to look at me blankly and not suggest anything or say anything right here. Nope. Okay. So, uh, 
The Transcendental Object at the End of Time is actually the title of a documentary from 2014, which has an IMDb description of an audio-visual journey through the mind of Terrence McKenna, which I can't even quite imagine. And I'm not going to try. Uh, I'm just going to move on to the Archaic Revival, which is actually a book. And in these essays, interviews, and narrative adventures, Terrence McKenna takes us on a mesmerizing journey deep into the Amazon, as well as into the hidden recesses of the human psyche and the outer limits of our culture, giving us startling visions into the past and future. Uh, Terrence McKenna is out there. But he has also delved deeper into the human psyche than I think probably anyone in the last century, with the possible exception of Carl Jung. I don't know what else to say about that, and you're giving me the look like I should just move the fuck on. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I know nothing about this person, so... I'm going to have to go show you some shit, because he is responsible for a lot of amazing shit that you take, well, that we all take for granted in the psychedelic community. There's a lot of shit I take for granted every day. So I know it's called being American. Touche. <laughs> All right, machine elves are also along this realm, and I uh, actually am going to be sharing a picture of them as well. Uh, at least a version of them that I found online by an interesting artist here. What do you think of this? That's cool picture. So, yes, it's an artist picture because what the fuck are you going to actually do? How do you describe these things? But uh, I don't know if this guy has actually been on ayahuasca, but this fractaline crystal-like thing, uh -huh. I have seen that portion of it in my experience. The creature that he's showing here, which looks a bit like a gray, I would say, um, does not enter my imagery yet, but maybe that's after blast-off. Maybe that's where I was headed. Um Maybe one of these days I'll try it again. Yeah. All right, we'll find out. Anyway, if I do, I'll tell you about it. Uh, the term machine elf was actually coined by Terrence McKenna. Uh, it's for the entities that he encountered in the DMT hyperspace. Also using terms like fractal elves or self-transforming machine elves, McKenna first encountered the machine elves after smoking DMT in Berkeley in 1965. His subsequent speculations regarding the hyperdimensional space in which they were encountered have inspired a great many artists, musicians, and the like. Um, and the meaning of DMT entities has been subject of considerable debate among participants in a network cultured underground enthused by McKenna's effusive accounts of DMT hyperspace. Cliff Pickover has also written about the machine elf experience in the book Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves. While Rick Strassman notes many of the similarities, self-reports on his DMT study of participants' encounters with these entities and mythological descriptions of figures such as uh, Chayat HaKodesh in ancient religions, uh, try looking that one up, including both angels and demons, uh, Basically, it's, he thinks that DMT is responsible for our interpretations of these beings, of these angelic encounters, things like that. Um, Strassman also argues for a similarity in, study, and in his study's participants' descriptions of mechanized wheels, gears, and machinery in these encounters with those described in visions 
of encounters with living creatures and orphanium in the Hebrew Bible, noting they may stem from a common neuropsychopharmacological experience. He argues that the more positive of these external entities encountered in DMT experiences should be understood as analogous to certain forms of angels. Therefore, the negative ones may be demons. But we know that like Moses supposedly encountered the burning bush. That burning bush has, I think, been called the acacia, uh, which also contains a high amount of DMT. So if you were standing in a burning bush of acacia, inhaling DMT fumes, maybe you'd be communing with God. I need a better drug dealer, dude. <laughs> we'll work on that later, but... Uh, what the fuck? <laughs> That is the perfect response for this. Um, I just, I, if these experiences are psychopharmacological, if they're because of experiences we have with plants, and then these prophets are trying to spread this word using their own terms, describing what they can see in these other planes, I'm going to say there was one time I took a few too many tabs of acid. I was a little fucking tired. I couldn't sleep because hour 15, hour 16 on that shit. <laughs> sometimes you're still going. Um, so I'm, I think it was actually probably about hour 10. So it was still fairly far into it. It was completely dark. Um, my girlfriend was asleep on the bed. I laid down on the floor and I could almost feel like the mechanics of time, like, crunching and like moving around me and i do feel like gear shapes and i remember seeing all this like kind of weird things that kind of relate to this dmt experience at a very weird peak uh lsd experience for me i would be i'm going to be uh blown away by what i do see and i will try and share it in my own words at some point when i brave the encounter again are you gonna try it Not tomorrow. No, 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 no. But is it something you uh, you think you want to experience at some point? Maybe. Quite possibly, but... Uh, Ayahuasca or just smoking? Ayahuasca is kind of a commitment. Yeah. Ayahuasca is really a commitment. Like, I'd have to be on a vacation and not have shit to do and just be on, like, some gorgeous island somewhere by myself. <sighs> we could arrange that, maybe. But yeah, yeah. you guys would probably come back to like a smoking hulk of an island. <laughs> We've released the, the Tasmanian crease on everything. Cr the fuck happened to the island? You guys left Chris and DMT on the island? <laughs> Ayahuasca? DMT. You did what? Uh, yeah, DMT, the uh, demilitarized Chris. No, no, that would be the remilitarized Chris. All right, let's move on. Um, the next thing is this. Uh, Dr. Mazuru Emoto, which I'm going to share some pictures of this photography as well. Uh, he's best known for taking photos of ice under varying conditions of music and intentions, producing strikingly different crystalline structures. I'm going to show you some images of this. Now, I don't know that it has been repeated. I would actually kind of like to check myself and just try these kinds of things, because if it is, it's fascinating. Uh, check Since out water doesn't change density all vibrations would absolutely do something to how the crystalline structure forms 
that's kind of what I would I would think there could be some science behind it. I would want to, like I said, I want to see evidence, and there doesn't seem to be. It's it's in crystalline structure. Well, it's it's not going to be so much in like the actual figuring out why it does that. Crystals form the same way. Take a look at this. This is what different vibrations or different things did to the crystalline structure of water after he like would look it up later on he would look at it through a microscope and this is supposedly what would happen i'm showing him a picture of heavy metal music um a uh repeated you make me sick i will kill you and adolf hitler as compared to a thank you love and appreciation and mother Teresa supposedly I don't necessarily agree with Ice's interpretation of heavy metal music. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. I think the... Um, it could shake some shit the loose thank in you and the heavy but... metal should be switched. <laughs> but that's just a personal preference. Um, I, don't, I don't see why there would be... Yeah. Any answer to why it looks like that exactly and because i don't like I, I could smoke some dmt and try and <laughs> figure it out well i would like to know if it's true if that if those gen those pictures are genuine or if it's just you know random bullshit so i would want to do it myself i would want somebody with the credentials to do it something that would be different than just you know trusting somebody's word i guess well we can try and do something along those lines if we do actually do We'd the need experiment, a controlled environment. we would need fucking a microscope. Maybe I'll rope one of my friends at the lab into it. Anyway, the next thing we're going to talk about is Carillion photography, which is a uh, collection of photographic techniques used to capture the phenomenon of electrical coronal discharges. It is named after Semyon Carillion, who in 1939 accidentally discovered that if an object on a photographic plate is connected to a high voltage source, an image is produced on the photographic plate. It's also said to show auras, maybe, or things like that, so it's this weird form of photography. I'm going to show you a picture of this penny that was then magnet. They ran magnetic voltage through this penny onto a film plate, developed it. And this is what you get. You get this. You can see the penny as far as what we know of it. It almost kind of looks like it's an eclipse. It almost looks like an eclipse. Yeah, like it's a, 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 a negative penny. image of a penny almost, but yeah. with this bright auric field around it. Take a look at the, the pictures. Like I said, it's on all the normal channels. Um, Gravity and magnets run everything. I'm saying there's just so much we don't understand. Mag it's... I took a physics class a long time ago, a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but one thing that definitely stuck out to me is that regardless of what situation you're in, gravity is always consistent and magnetism does some really weird things Agreed. to us, to the earth. That's actually why I think there might be something to astrology while, where I think it's mostly it was observed by ancients and so we've put it into weird terms but if the gravity of the planets in our solar system are massive enough by having them around there maybe in their positions at weird times 
they affect you differently. Maybe you're, because you're born at a certain time, you're kind of born with those metals or those minerals kind of in your structure, or you're kind of more prone to something at that era. I don't know how to really explain it, but I could, I could see it being possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. The gravity of the full moon uh, affects things down to like even our body weight. Um, we weigh different, obviously, um, throughout the month, but the effect on the water and our bodies based off of where the moon is located actually makes us weigh less or more based off of where it's positioned. So you mean when my ex said that she felt fat certain times in the month, she might not have been wrong? Oh, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I don't re recommend ever saying that. I'm <laughs> not going to dig myself in any holes because I am a fan of not digging holes that uh, I don't want to be in. Okay. Um, good thing I'm single right now. Uh, Aren't we all? <laughs> thank you so much for joining me, Chris. I think that leaves us deep enough down this rabbit hole for this week. Uh, my brain melted somewhere along in there. But yeah, I like total mindfuck. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you were here to join me for it. I hope you all found this episode fun and that you join us back here next week on Awakened Exchanges. Have a good day. Thank you again for joining me on another episode on this massive map. I hope we continue to make the subjects a little less daunting as you begin your research on your own. I hope you enjoyed this episode at least half as much as I did recording it, and that you're looking forward to the next segment as much as I am. I want to give a special thanks to all of our listeners. You are the reason I'm doing this. Please tell your friends about us, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, or wherever else you're listening. And if you can, please leave us a comment or five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help with visibility. You can also support us on Patreon or connect with us on the social media of your choice. We are at Awakened Exchanges on Facebook and Instagram and at Awaken Exchanges on Twitter. Thanks again and have a blessed day.